pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to be in Luke chapter 10. You want to join us there? I'd like you to mark your calendars for a very important day that is coming up. You say, all right, are you talking about the worship conference again? We've got it this, this February 12th. And I'm not talking about that. By the way, February 12th is also Chris Cook's birthday and Ryan Rushing's birthday. It's a really important day. It's also two days before Valentine's. So, so men, that's a good day to maybe go buy the chocolates. Don't wait until Monday, February 14th. But I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about President's Day, which is that's uh, just about a month from now. February 21st is President's Day. No, I'm talking about a a holiday that is actually not really a holiday, but a special day that's coming up on March the 20th. Anybody know what's on March the 20th? All right, March the 20th is International Day of Happiness, right? They just make you happy. An International Day of Happiness, we're all just going to be happy to, don't worry, and be happy. Did you, how many of you knew there was such a thing as International Day of Happiness? Um, I didn't until I I Googled it. Uh, In conjunction with, with that day, the World Happiness Report is released where the different countries are evaluated on a number of different factors to determine what's the happiest country in the world. And by the way, it is not the United States. I know, surprise, I know, just, you go to Twitter, you think we were just exuding joy and unity all the time. It's actually Finland that is regarded as the happiest country in the world, which I don't get. They have darkness through all the winter and it's cold and miserable up there. But they're, they're supposedly the happiest country in the world. Afghanistan is down near the bottom for, for obvious reasons. Uh, basically, these happiness scores are correlated with, with economic prosperity and political stability. So if you're in a country that's constantly having coups and revolutions, you're further down the happiness score. Whether When you're in one that's stable, you're further up. Makes sense. Poor countries are not as happy as rich countries. Having a day like the International Day of Happiness is just another reminder that we live in a world where everybody is engaged in this elusive pursuit of real joy. We can get sort of passing happiness to be like, oh, good, we didn't have a revolution this year. Like, we're happier than people who did. Uh, Marketers understand that. I I picked up on this when I was listening to Pandora, listening to music, and these ads would come on. And I I can't remember what the product was. But they were marketing it, and they were using the word joy. If you get this product, you will have real joy. It wasn't just, hey, this will help you have a better day. But they were saying, this will give you joy. And that's sort of a quasi-spiritual, religious word that, you know, getting the right type of paper towels or air fresheners will give you joy. Marketers understand that everybody has got this longing for joy in their hearts. And there's actually a trend in marketing called joy marketing. Um, Cadbury, the people who make the chocolate, Got that figured out, and they've had this long campaign talking about how Cadbury can bring you joy. And, you know, I'm actually like, yeah, that kind of chocolate, that, that's awesome, right? Or, you know, the, the, the trend in recent years of minimalism, Marie Kondo, tidying up with Marie Kondo or whatever the show was. Her famous quote, she's like, you're, you're trying to clean out your closet, figure out what's going to stay and what's going to go. She says this, my criterion for deciding to keep an item is that we should feel a thrill of joy when we touch it. I'm like... Okay, there's some things that kind of like, yeah, that makes me happy, but a thrill of joy, a spark of joy from a shirt in my closet, I'm sorry, that's never, I've never, I've never had a shirt that maybe the hoodie comes close, but I've never had a, a, an item that's like, oh, this gives me joy, and it doesn't work that way. You see, can we really find joy in a political system? Can you really find joy in uh, economic prosperity? Can we really find joy... In Cadbury, 
And what if physical items are not inhabited by the joy-sparking spirits of which Marie Kondo speaks? Like, what if stuff and money and external things can't really fix the joy deficit that we have in our souls? You see, what happens when a pandemic comes along and brings the political stability crashing down like a game of Jenga? What happens when we find longings in our soul that nothing physical, that no experience can satisfy? What then? What then when you have it all and you're like, I still don't have it? We're left in a desert looking for water. We're left longing for joy. Like people who are in a parched wasteland looking for something to satisfy. This whole pursuit of joy seems to support C.S. Lewis's famous assertion from mere Christianity when he says, If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy... The only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. We all long for joy, but we're looking in all these places trying to find it. In Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 17, we're going to run into a text of Scripture that is like a a candy store full of, of joy, right? It's like a hungry person coming into a restaurant that is the smell of steaks come wafting out the door. This is a, a, a text that is just exuding and bubbling over with joy. And the joy that we find here that's cascading down like a waterfall is not based on changing temporal circumstances, but on unchanging eternal realities. Look at it with me. And notice the joy terminology that we find here. So beginning in Luke 10, verse verse 17. And the 70 70 returned again with joy. If you like to circle words, circle that word joy. Saying, Lord, even the demons are subject unto us through thy name. And he said unto them, I beheld, I was beholding, I was watching Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Behold, I've given you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. And nothing shall by any means hurt you. Notwithstanding, in this rejoice not, there's another joy word, that word rejoice, circle that. Rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. It's like, yeah, rejoice, yeah, demons are subject to you, but here's a greater joy that your names are written in heaven. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced. Okay, this is actually a different Greek word, verse 21. Rejoiced in spirit, literally in the Holy Spirit, and said, I thank thee, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. All things are delivered to me of my Father. And no man knoweth the Son, who the Son is, but the Father, and who the Father is, but the Son, and he to whom the Son will reveal him. And he turned unto his disciples and said privately, Blessed, okay, this is another joy word. This is the word blessed, satisfied, genuinely happy, if you want to circle that. Blessed are the eyes which see the things that ye see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see those things which ye see, and have not seen them, and to hear the things which ye hear, and have not heard them. So here's a text where we get the word joy in verse 17. We get the word rejoice twice in verse 20. We get the word exult and celebrate in verse 21. And the word blessed in verse 23. The text just exuding with joy. It's giving us, here's where real joy is going to be found. Not the joy of Cadbury or a tidy closet, but real joy. These are four unchanging eternal realities that fuel our joy, that sustain our joy. 
Say, okay, I need, I need some joy this morning. Now, when I'm talking about joy, I'm not talking about just mere, oh, I'm happy now, and now I'm sad. But I'm talking about something that's deeper than that. A, a joy that can, can actually weep, yet still have underlying confidence in God. I'm talking about a joy that can still be satisfied in God, even when there's some things missing from your life. I'm talking about something that is deeper, a, a pleasure and a delight in God that is willing to go through sacrifice, because what you have in God is so good and glorious. So what are these four unchanging eternal realities that, that fuel our joy? The first one is this, the joy of spiritual victory. It's in verses 17 to 19, the, the 70, actually the 72, we saw that last week. They come back from their missions trip and they're filled with joy. The 72 missionaries, we saw last week Jesus sent them out. And by the way, their mission was not the kind of mission that we would think, oh, that'll be fun. He says, no, you're going to go out like sheep among wolves. Right? You're not going out with anything. You're dependent on people's generosity. You're going to face hardship. So it's not like they, man, they just went to Disney World. No, they just went off into walking across sort of a minefield of spiritual difficulties and dangers. And, but they're coming back with joy. That's amazing. Coming back from a difficult mission with joy. What's this joy based on? Saying, Lord, even the demons are subject unto us through thy name. They call Jesus Lord, recognizing his authority. And they're saying, through your name, because of your authority, that's not just a magical, like, the name of Jesus, and you just say that and stuff starts happening. Must be careful not to treat the name of Jesus like some kind of magical incantation where you, I, I, de- I declare that my car in Jesus' name should start this morning. Like, it's not a magical thing that we come along and just sort of go around doing stuff. But this is real authority. They're commissioned by Jesus to represent Jesus and to declare Jesus. In the same way, we go out to the world to declare Jesus as if we were in his place. They're declaring the gospel with authority. But they're saying, even the demons were subject unto us. Now, why are they saying that? If you read the first few verses of Luke 10, nowhere does Jesus promise these 72 that they would have authority over demons. He promised that to the 12 apostles back in Luke 9, but he hadn't promised that to these other disciples of his. So this is sort of above and beyond what they expected. This was surprising. They knew they would preach and they would heal but having, having authority over demons, that was something they did not expect. They'd preached, they'd seen results, people had turned to Jesus. Demons had submitted to them. They were able to, to cast demons out and see people delivered from the chains of slavery. They'd had victory, they'd seen miracles. This was no ordinary preaching tour. We'd call it today, they'd seen revival. And they had seen a, a mighty working of God on this mission. Now, what's at stake here? It is the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. Right? Jump over to Luke chapter 11 and verse 20. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees who are saying, oh, you're, you're in cahoots with Satan. He's saying, no, that, that can't be. Satan can't be divided against himself. But he says in verse 20, Luke 11, if I with the finger of God cast out demons, no doubt the kingdom of God has come upon you. In other words, these demons being cast out is more than just, hey, that was a cool trick, but it is, it is to say that Jesus is the promised king, he is the ruler, and Satan's kingdom is being pushed out, and the kingdom of God is entering, it is breaking, and the king is here. I think that's why they're so excited. Like, this is proof that the, the kingdom is here, and Satan, is, his power is being thwarted. Now, we don't routinely experience displays of divine power like this. There's a lot of people out there claiming to be able to do, oh, we heal, and then then you start digging into it, and there's a lot of stagecraft and manipulation going on. But let's not fall into the trap of thinking that because the age of apostles has passed and the gifts of the apostles are are relegated to a past 
era, which, which, which I would affirm. Let's not fall into the trap to say because of that, we don't expect God to work in powerful ways. Sometimes we can get this idea, oh, the end is coming, and things are just going to get worse and worse. We're just going to hunker down until Jesus comes and not pray for or preach towards a, a great turning to God in our land. God is the same God. The God we worship is the same God of the Great Awakening. He is the same God who worked through Spurgeon. He's the same God who worked through the Apostles, the same God who worked through Augustine or through Luther or through Whitfield. He's still capable of doing awesome things. And when we see God work, it should thrill our souls. It should thrill our souls to see, see chains of addictions being shattered through Christ. Guess what? God still does that. No people who have turned to Jesus and the chains of addictions have been shattered. Through Christ, broken marriages are restored and our hearts should rejoice in that because it shows Jesus is king and the kingdom of Satan is continuing to be pushed back. Through Christ, old idolatries lose their power. Through Christ, selfish sinners are transformed into selfless servants. Hopefully you can look in your life and see the transforming grace and power of God. You say, I, I used to be like this. Now, by God's grace, I've seen growth. That is the power of God that is just as, as great and incredible as demons being cast out in this, in this profound, awesome way. Have you experienced the joy of spiritual victory in your life? The joy of seeing, by the power of God, I have victory over a sin that I once loved. That, that the things that, that used to hold me captive don't hold me captive anymore. You've seen the joy of God working through you. These guys were just thrilled, and we've been preached, and people are delivered. Have you ever had the joy of being able to be the instrument of sharing the gospel to someone else and seeing them actually repent and believe in Jesus? Now, I understand we don't have control over whether or not people repent and believe, but let me tell you this. If you don't tell anyone about Jesus, you're not going to see them repent and believe, right? If we never share the gospel, it shouldn't surprise us if we never see people respond to the gospel through our ministry because there is no ministry to talk of. There are, there are a few things that are as thrilling and joy-inducing as seeing God use you to bring another sinner into the kingdom of God. When was the last time that you gave the life-giving message of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus to another person? When was the last time you urged them to repent and believe? When was the last time you had the opportunity to speak of the wonders of God's word to someone who doesn't believe in Christ. If you never have, let me just put this out there. There are a few things that will bring you more joy in life than that. And that's a good thing and it's a right thing. Jesus, Jesus affirms this joy that they have, that this is great. This is truly awesome. Verse 18 goes along to talk about this victory. Jesus says, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Okay, this is a tough verse. What is he referring to? Is it the fall of Satan back you know, before the Garden of Eden? Is this the, the fall of Satan that he's going to see in the future when Satan is finally defeated? Is he talking about the, the wilderness temptation? Is he talking about Satan being, being defeated through the ministry of the 72? Here's my take on it. Jesus is viewing the entire defeat of Satan throughout all of history in sort of one decisive vision. Satan's defeated multiple times, right? He gets kicked out of heaven. He comes down. He tempts Adam and Eve. He's cursed. He's defeated in the, the Jesus coming in, the kingdom breaking in. He's, he, his head is crushed through the death, burial, and resurrection. And one day, he's going to be consigned to the lake of fire. And he's going to one day be consigned for all eternity where he can no longer tempt or harm God's people. I think Jesus is referring to all of it. Like lightning is to say it's sudden, right? When lightning strikes, it's not like slow motion there. It is zigzag and boom, like let me 
dodge the lightning bolt. It doesn't work that way. It's, it's quick. He's talking about a decisive and total defeat of Satan that is evidenced through these guys and their ministry. So Satan, he's like, I, I've got power over Satan. The, the, the sense here is Satan is under the authority of God. Right? Martin Luther put it this way, yeah, the devil is dangerous, but at least he is God's devil. Right? He is under God's authority, and he can do nothing apart from God's authority and God's permission. That's an encouraging truth, isn't it? What a reminder to know that this world is not run by Satan. It's ultimately run by God. I see too many Christians, and I, I've seen this more and more in the last few years, Christians going further and further into these dark conspiracy theories. And I'm not, saying, I'm not here denying that there are bad people who want to do bad things in our world. We know that given human nature, that, that's going to be the case. But it does seem to me that when we begin to think that there are dark forces that are really the ones running the world, that we have lost sight of the fact that Satan's not in charge, but the God of heaven is in charge. Right? There's not this little group somewhere that they're, they're doing things and God's up there like, oh, no, no, no. He is sovereign, and he rules over all things, and Satan is a defeated foe. So verse 19 now works out the implications of that. He says, behold, I'm giving you power to tread. The power here, by the way, is the word authority, to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. The authority that we as God's people have over the, the enemy is not an innate authority. It's not that I just go around speaking words of authority and rebuking Satan. It's that Jesus has defeated him. And Jesus has all authority. He says in, in Matthew 28, all authority is given unto me in heaven and earth, so go therefore and make disciples of my name. He has all authority. He says, I'm giving you authority. I'm giving you the ability to tread. Now, the idea of treading is just sort of walk willy-nilly all over scorpions and snakes. That's not something that I would want to do. Like Tahiti, they do that, like, run on the coals thing. I'm like, eh, it looks crazy. If you were like, here's a room full of snakes, go walk on them. I'd be like, not for me, right? And I'm not doing that. I'm like, I don't like snakes. I don't like scorpions. I don't like bees and wasps and all. He said, hey, you've got the ability to walk on scorpions, to just tread on them. Now, he's not talking literally. He's not saying we as Christians can go bring snakes to church and pass them around and look, we, we didn't get killed. Every so often you get a news story about some snake handler who dies of a snake bite. That's not what Jesus is promising. Satan is portrayed as a serpent in the Garden of Eden. Serpents and scorpions are symbolic references to his demonic minions. That, that's what this is about. He's saying, I'm giving you authority over the enemy, over the demons, over Satan's minions. He's saying Satan's eternal defeat, pictured in verse 18, means that you have temporal victory now. Giving you authority. Satan is like a serpent where he poisons the world with his lies, and he is like a scorpion who stings with the sting of death. And Jesus has neutralized both by his power. That doesn't mean that Satan no longer is. We don't have to worry about him. He's still a roaring lion. But he's under the authority and his, of Jesus and his defeat, his doom is sure. I love the words of a mighty fortress is our God, though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us. Right? Yeah, that, that's our world full of evil. But then Martin Luther goes on to say, we're not the right man on our side, the man of God's choosing. Just ask who that may be, Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabbath is his name from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. He's the Lord of hosts. He's on our side, and he has won the victory. So, yeah, there's great joy in spiritual victory. There's great joy in knowing the, the enemy is defeated through the finished work of Jesus. There's great joy in seeing mighty works being done through the people of God. We can rejoice when we see sinners come to faith. We can rejoice when we can see the power of the enemy defeated. 
But Jesus goes on to say, hey, here's a greater, a greater joy. The joy is not just of spiritual victory, but it is the joy of eternal security. Look at the end of verse 19 going into verse 20. And nothing shall by any means hurt you, notwithstanding in this rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rejoice, rather rejoice, because your names are written in heaven. Now, he's not saying it's wrong to rejoice in your victory. He's like, yeah, that's good. But here's an even greater joy, that you have a right relationship with God and you're secure in him. So that's far greater than anything that you can do. The end of verse 19 says, nothing shall by any means hurt you. So basically, Greek can, has a number of different ways to negate stuff. This is the one that's really emphatic. Absolutely no way shall anything hurt hurt you. Now, he's not saying physically. Uh, by the way, if you know anything about the lives of the apostles, 11 of the 12 apostles died violent deaths. So this is not a promise that you would never suffer pain. This is a promise to say spiritually, Satan cannot touch you. You're, you are secure in Christ, and there will be no spiritual harm that will come to you. That's what he's referring to in verse 20 as well. Don't rejoice that the spirits are subject unto you. In other words, don't find all of your joy in great miraculous works of power. Find your joy in even something deeper. Your names have been written in heaven. Jesus is not condemning their joy and their victory. He is simply contrasting it with an even greater joy and calling them from, yeah, this joy is good, but here's an even greater joy. Yes, spiritual victory is great, but eternal security is greater. Relationship with God is greater. Don't be as delighted in the extraordinary displays of divine power as you are in the reality of your salvation. Let me put it this way. Don't find your joy in whatever great things you accomplish for Christ, but find your joy in the great things he has accomplished for you, right? Joy is not found in what I do for him, but what he's done for me. We make the mistake as Christians sometimes as finding my joy and my worth and my satisfaction in the things I do for Jesus. By the way, we should serve Jesus and love him. We begin to think, hey, I'm going to read my Bible. I've read all, I'm up to date on the reading guide, and I'm in Exodus or wherever we're supposed to be right now. Check that box. And I had a good prayer time this morning, and I'm going to check that box. And I made it to church on time today, and I'm going to check that box. And I, I gave out a tract, and I'm going to check that box. I'm feeling quite good about myself. And so my joy begins to feel a little more full because I'm doing some things for God, and I'm seeing works and ministry, and the church is growing, and more people are here, and man, this feels good. And then the next day, I oversleep the alarm clock, and so I don't get my time with God, and I don't get into the Word as much as I should. And... Uh, I've decided to be lazy and prioritize something other than God, and I don't come to church. And then all of a sudden, my joy is just in the dumps. Now, I'm not suggesting that those things don't matter. They, they do matter. Obeying God does matter, and pleasing God does matter. But they must not be the basis of our joy and our sense of worth before God. Our worth is not in what we do for him, but what he has done for us. I am loved by God, not because of what I've done, but because of Christ died in my place. And Jesus is of infinite worth to the Father. And I'm in Christ, which means I am viewed as of infinite worth to God, but it's not because of me. How liberating would it be, Christian, if you got away from the checkbox mentality, my joy is based on how many things I do for Jesus, and instead looked to the finished work of Jesus Look to the cross and the empty tomb and, and know that my acceptance with God is not based on my works, but on Jesus. See, all of us are recovering legalists. Right? The, the human condition is sort of hardwired to think, i got to do stuff for God. And even as Christians, I know I'm saved by faith, I begin to fall back into that. Our joy is not found in what we do for Christ, but what he has done for us. He's saying, here's a greater joy. And by the way, when I understand that 
My acceptance is based on what Jesus has done. It is actually motivation and fuel to, out of the worship and the overflow of joy, to do those other things. Not, not as a slave, but as a son. This is a greater joy. You see, just because you have had an effective ministry does not mean you're actually right with God. You say, I'm doing all these great things, proof that I'm saved. Jesus says, many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name? You know, one of the 12 who would have gone off on these missions trips was Judas Iscariot. You know who would have healed people? Judas Iscariot. You know who would have cast out demons? Judas Iscariot. You know who preached sermons? Judas Iscariot. You know who heard the words of Jesus and saw the miracles of Jesus? Judas. And Judas is the son of perdition. It would have been better for him if he had never been born. Be careful about, about anchoring your security on your joy on some great spiritual experience. Sometimes I get people who say, you know, someone died in my life and I was just really wrestling with grief and then I just had this spiritual experience where God felt so close and that's the basis of their eternal security. Careful about rooting your eternal security and your assurance before God based on some experience rather than on Jesus. So he says, rejoice rather, verse 20, because your names are written in heaven. This is an eternal joy. That, that phrase, are written in heaven, could be also rendered, have been written or are written. In other words, it's something that happened in the past, eternity past, that they remain written. They were written in eternity past. That's the, op- that's the level on which God operates. He is eternal. And they remain written. God's not in there adding new names to the list and then striking names off like, oh, you didn't make it. So that we have that, you know, that hymn, there's a new name written down in glory. Actually, not true. Revelation 17, verse 8 says, the names are written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. God's not adding new names and taking names off. So in the eternal perspective, God has this list that is from eternity past. By the way, if it's rooted in eternity past, why do you think there's something in time that you would do that would change that reality? We are secure in Jesus because of what God has done for us. From eternity past, God determined to save his people. And what he determined in eternity past is accomplished in time. By the way, eternity past is a misnomer because there's not past, present, and future in eternity. It's just, I am that I am. Before Abraham was, I am God present at what we would regard at all points of time. We're the ones who are time-bound, not God. I don't understand how that all works. I don't know how to reconcile that reality with my experiences and all of these things. But it does give us joy to know that our names are written, that we belong to God, that we are on the heavenly register of the citizens of the kingdom of God. That's what's being referenced. We are citizens of the kingdom. Now, we come. there is a point in time in our lives where we come to faith and trust in Jesus Christ and are saved, where what God determined is carried out. When you bow the knee to King Jesus and receive him as Lord, have you done that? Is your name written in heaven? Have you come to him as your savior and as your king? If you're a Christian, what comfort is to know that you are secure in Jesus? The language at the end of verse 19, nothing shall by any means hurt you, reminded me of John chapter 10 where Jesus says, they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. The complete and total security and safety of the believer in God. So rejoice in that relationship. When I'm not... Let me give you an example. You ever see people who are insecure in their relationships? 
right? They're not, they're not really sure, is this person like me? Is this friendship good? And there, there's this, sort of this neediness to be like, let me shore up the relationship all the time. They're never able to actually enjoy the relationship. I see college students when I taught at a college where there are these, these precarious dating relationships and all the effort is put into just protecting the relationship and they don't actually enjoy each other. But what happens when you get into a relationship where you are confident of the other person's love, where you are confident of the other person's commitment? You are actually able to enjoy the other person for who they are. And the same is true in an infinitely greater way as Christians. When I am, when I am secure in my relationship with God, and I know that he loves me through Christ eternally, and that never changes, I am able to enjoy God. I'm not working to try to shore up the relationship and make sure everything's okay and make sure God's where I No, I can enjoy him as the greatest treasure that he really is. That's the implication. Assurance is not just, yay, I'm saved. I'm once saved, always saved. It's not this trite little slogan we throw out, but it is a living, vital relationship that we have. What kindness. So rejoice in that relationship. Rejoice in that kindness. Rejoice in that security. Rejoice in your God who has saved you and made you his people. A lot of gloomy Christians. What if we step back and and recognize what an awesome treasure we have in the gospel and just reminded ourselves over and over again of what God has done for us and in us and to us. So the joy of eternal security. There's a joy of spiritual victory. We can rejoice in what God does through us, but rejoice even more what God has done for us. We come now to a third joy, a third pillar that, uh, of an unchanging eternal reality that, that, that fuels our joy. That upholds our joy, that sustains our joy. Verse 21, it is the joy of divine sovereignty. In that same hour, this is to say the same account, the same occasion. This is, this is not some other event years down the road. This is connected, but we've got the disciples' joy. Now we get Jesus' joy. Jesus rejoiced in spirit. Or the original text would say in the Holy Spirit. And said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes, even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. All things are delivered to me by my Father, and no man knoweth who the Son is but the Father, and who the Father is but the Son, and he to whom the Son will reveal him. It's a lot of sovereignty type words. When I talk about sovereignty, God's right to do whatever he wants because he's God. So we get the, 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 the phrase, Lord of heaven and earth. He made it. He rules it. He gets to do what he wants in his world. He doesn't have to ask anybody's permission. We get the, the phrase, he has hidden the truth of the gospel from some people, and he's revealed it to others. They're like, I don't like that. Well, it seemed good in his sight. That, that's a word that, that's according to his goodwill. That's what he wanted to do. That was what was right to him. Verse 22 says, everything's been delivered to me by my father. Jesus has all authority by virtue of his relationship with the father. Nobody can know the Father or the Son, and then there's whom Jesus will reveal, uh, to, to whom Jesus will reveal, and then that word will is speaking of his will to do so. There's a joy in this. There's a joy in the sovereignty of God. Now, sometimes we run into people who talk a lot about the sovereignty of God, and it doesn't create any joy in their hearts, right? They, they're like really, you know, real cold and real analytical, and we just talk about the sovereignty of God and the elect, and they're just... The, the, this truth of God being in control, biblically, should make us joyful once we grasp it, right? Not make us people who go and argue with everybody online about our view of how these things work, but we rejoice in it and we worship God because of it. 
Jesus himself displays what I'm going to call a sovereign joy in verse 21. Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. Now, this word rejoiced is a different Greek word. This is one of the strongest words you can have for rejoicing. It means to be exceedingly joyful, to exult, to be glad, to be overjoyed. Like this is laughter and happiness and celebration in Jesus. Some of these people are like, there's no record of Jesus ever laughing in the Gospels, so neither should we. I think he laughed. I think it was just overflowing of just, this is so awesome, and clapping and celebration. Jesus had genuine joy. He's also the man of sorrows, and he's also this one who can exult and celebrate. He displays the whole range of human emotions, yet without sin, truly human. And he does this in the Holy Spirit, inter-Trinitarian joy. Okay, this is pretty deep stuff that we're, we just jumped into like the 30-foot end of the pool, right? Like Jesus, God the Son rejoicing in God the Spirit and then praising God the Father. Do you see that? Rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and then I thank thee, O Father, this relationship between the three persons of the Trinity that is just overflowing and exuding joy. Absolutely incredible. Here's the incarnate Son of God. He is inspired with joy by the Holy Spirit. By the way, one of the fruits of the Spirit is love, joy. It's a a fruit of the Spirit, and Jesus lives his life dependent on the Holy Spirit. And here the Holy Spirit just inspires this joy in the heart of Jesus. But I think the Holy Spirit also inspired it by being the one who empowered the 72. So Jesus is like... Look at what the 70 were able to accomplish on their mission. And that brings joy. And then the Spirit's working in his heart. And it's just this explosion of joy. So I call this sovereign joy because it is not based on circumstances. But it's based simply on God. God does not need anything to have joy. You realize that, right? God doesn't create the world. He's like, man, I've just been up here for eternity past. And it's really lonely out here. And let's create No, there's nothing lacking in God. He does not need anything. God does not save us because he's like, man, heaven just wouldn't be heaven without these people here. I think there's like some some worship songs that suggest that. that No, there's no lack of anything in God. God creates for the sheer pleasure of creating. Right? Because it would be really awesome to build a universe. You realize there are nebula that are out there in these faraway galaxies that nobody's ever seen. Maybe the James Webb Telescope will see more stuff that no human being has ever seen in history that's just been up there throughout all of history for God to look at and be like, look what I made. That's so cool. Like angels come over here and look at Just delighting in the works of his hands. God's saving us not because we add anything to the glory of God. He's infinite but just for the joy of saving us. That's what that word at the end of verse 21, for so it seemed good in thy sight, it was pleasing to God to save us. Expel from your minds this idea of God being up in heaven as this grumpy, angry, lightning bolt, big beard. No, he's a God who is overflowing with joy. Yes, he's a God of justice and a God of wrath, and he is precisely that because the sin destroys the joy that he intends in the hearts of his creatures. But what a glimpse we have here into the Godhead. Jesus is rejoicing, sovereign joy, but notice what he's rejoicing. He says, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Okay, so a Jew, a pious Jew in Jesus' day would, we bless you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, or we bless you, God, O Lord of heaven and earth. But Jesus calls this one who is Lord of heaven and earth, Father. That's audacious. And not just an our father in a generic sense, but a my father kind of sense. Right? This is Jesus' direct address. He teaches us to pray our father because we're all us, right? We're corporate. He prays to God as my father in a way that is unique and exclusive only to 
him because he's the eternal son of God. So what sets his heart ablaze is delight in God's sovereign revelation of himself, how he sees fit. Look at, look at verse 21. This is astounding. You have hid these things, the truth of the gospel and the truth of Satan's defeat and the truth of the kingdom breaking in from the wise and prudent. The people who you most expect to understand divine truth, God's like, nope, I'm hiding it from you. Those who are proud, God resists the proud but gives grace to whom? The humble. When Jesus came, it was not to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes of the angels went, but who? The, the shepherds. We've seen this over and over again in Luke's gospel. He, he selects Mary, this girl from Galilee, to be the one through, through whom he comes into the world. You've hidden these things from the wise and prudent. The experts and the educated and the, 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 the pious and the proud, the ones who think we have an inside track to know God, he's like, I'm hiding it from you. The precondition for knowing me is humility. And you've revealed it to babes. No, he's not talking about literal, literal babies. You're like, hey, literal babies get saved. Let's baptize them. That's not what he's dealing with, but he's using the language here metaphorically. Babies don't know much, right? Anything. They are helpless. They are dependent. He says the ones who are going to receive my revelation are the ones who see themselves as helpless and dependent and have a heart that is ready to learn. It was not the Herod the Great who was included, but it was Peter the fisherman. Uneducated fishermen, dodgy tax collectors, former prostitutes are the ones he revealed himself to. In fact, Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 takes sort of an extended riff on this, and he says, you look, at, look around the church, guys. There's not many powerful, not many noble according to the flesh who are called. God's chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. Why? That no man should glory in his presence. He gets all the glory. That's shocking. That's unexpected. God reveals himself to those who see themselves as helpless like infants. He saves those who are of a contrite and broken spirit. He gives the kingdom to those who come as beggars, who recognize, I got nothing. I'm coming empty-handed to depend on his grace. Verse 22 continues, all things are handed over to me or delivered to me by my father. So Jesus has this authority from his father. He has power from his father. Think Matthew 28. All authority is given to me in heaven and in earth by virtue of his divine rule, by virtue of his victory. And no man knows who the Son is but the Father, and who the Father is but the Son. You and I, through reason alone, could never know God. And we might stare at the universe and be like, yeah, as a creator, but we would never know his character as Father. We would never know his nature as Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God. We would never know his grace or his mercy or his love or his abundance apart from his revelation to us, first through his word, the written word, and is through the word, the living word. We would never know who God is apart from Jesus coming into this world. He is the supreme and full revelation of all that is in God, is in Jesus. The relationship between the Father and the Son is so inexhaustible and infinite and eternal and Beyond our comprehension, nobody really knows the Father except the Son. The Son but the Father, there is this this mutual revelation and knowledge that we cannot quite understand. We're kind of like outsiders pressing our face to the glass, watching everybody on the inside eating their donuts. We're getting a little glimpse of what's going on, but we're not actually fully comprehending the inner workings of the Trinity. But here's the point, the 
The relationship between Father and Son, because the Son is God, the Father is God. Only God can reveal God. Only God can fully know God. Here's what he says here at the end of verse 22. Nobody can know these people but the Son, the Father, the Son, and he to whom the Son will reveal him. He says, and I as the Son have the sole authority to reveal the Father to whoever I want. So if I want to reveal the Father to these 12 guys, I can. If I want to hide him from the scribes and Pharisees, I can. Nobody has a right to this revelation. It is God's sole right. It is the Son's sole right. Where's the role of the Spirit? We find out that the Spirit is the one who opens our hearts to receive this revelation according to 1 Corinthians 2. Now, in the parallel account in Matthew, Jesus prays the same prayer in Matthew 11. And then he immediately whirls around and says this, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So we get this amazing statement of God's sovereignty, and then, boom, this amazing statement of man's responsibility and the free offer of the gospel to whoever wants it. This does not translate into, well, now I'm not going to go tell anyone about Jesus. Jesus then turns around and whirls around to the crowd that's nearby. Anyone who wants to come can come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, all who see their sin, all who see their neediness, come to me and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. Not not you weren't, I'm not going to reveal myself. No, anyone who comes, I will give rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. This authority has to reveal the Father. He then turns around and offers it to anyone who will come to him in repentance and faith. If you've never come to God through Jesus, there's never been a time that you've been born again. You don't have that assurance in your soul. I beg of you, I plead of you to come to Jesus today. He'll in no wise cast out. There's the joy of divine sovereignty. Think about the hope and the joy that gives to you and me. To know that the Father is completely in control. He's given authority to the Son. The Son is the sole revealer of the Father. Look, man, that takes a lot of pressure off of us to try to do things in people's hearts that we don't really have the capacity to do. Husband, you cannot change your wife's heart. Parents, you cannot make your children love God through just control. Only only the Spirit can do that. We can appeal, we can offer, we can put the truth out there, we can love, but only God can do that. And if you are going to know God, it's only going to be through Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. John 1 and verse 18. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom. That's Jesus Christ. May we bow and rejoice in him. But there is a fourth and final joy that our text unfolds for us. There's a joy of spiritual victory, of seeing God work in and through us. There's a joy of eternal security, of knowing that our names are written in heaven. There's a joy of divine sovereignty as we revel in the fact that the, 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 the Son reveals the Father and the Spirit points us to the Son and that this is God's work. But there's a final joy, the joy of what I'm going to call privileged opportunity. Verse 23, And he turned him unto his disciples. I think now he is talking just to the twelve. There's been the, the seventy-two. He's now talked to the twelve. There's a crowd that's probably around. There always is a crowd. But now he turns and he said to them privately. 
Okay, so what he's about to say is, is unique. This is not true of everybody who saw him physically. He says, blessed are the eyes which see the things that ye see. He's not talking about mere physical sight. He's talking about what we might call insight. He's talking about perception. Those who don't just see, oh, here's a great teacher, but they see in Jesus of Nazareth, the one who is the king. They see in this man, the one who is the Messiah. They see in this, this, this individual, the God-man. They see in him the, the one through whom the kingdom of God has arrived. He turns to them and says, you are blessed. Not just blessing the eyes, like your eyes are uniquely blessed, but that is to say, you, the, the one who is seeing these things, you're blessed, that's the word makarios, the word that is satisfied or even enviable that other people look at me like, man, they, that guy's, that, I want what he's got. He says, you're the one who's the object of that. You're the one who is blessed that people look at. If you see these things, if you have been the ones that have experienced this revelation, you're the ones whom the Son has revealed the Father to. You're incredibly blessed, fortunate, enviable. He says, because you have seen me, you're the infants that verse 21 was, was talking about, the, the ones that, have, that these things have been revealed to. Blessed are those eyes that see. Verse 24, for I tell you, the many prophets and kings have desired to see those things which ye see, if not seen them, and to hear the things which ye hear and have not heard them. You are privileged. You, you live in this age of opportunity, age of fulfillment. They, they look forward to it. You're living it. You're living in this age of, of opportunity to see and to know me as the king, he's telling the, the twelve. And this is just as true of us as it was of them. We're living in this age of fulfillment. Jump with me over to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. Hebrews, James, Peter. Peter's writing to a bunch of Christians scattered through Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. Not people who lived in Palestine, not people who saw Jesus. In fact, he says in verse 8, whom having not seen, you love. Okay, You've not actually seen Jesus with the, with the naked eye. You've not actually been where he was and done these, seen the things that I've seen. You love him even though you have not seen him. So you have salvation. Look at verse 10. Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently. So Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. They, they could see the future as God revealed to them that the Messiah is going to come and that the salvation is going to be experienced and the new covenant would be would be established, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. So here's Christians much like you and me who didn't see Jesus physically. We've received salvation. He's saying the prophets were looking forward to what you and I have. These prophets were searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify. So they were digging into it. They were studying their own prophecies to be like, what does this all mean and when's it going to happen and how's it going to happen? When the Spirit testified beforehand the suffering of Christ and the glory that should follow. That was clear in the Old Testament that the Messiah would suffer and that he would be glorified, that he would be rejected and then he would reign. Unto whom, okay, unto the prophets, it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister. Hey, this is pretty sweet. Isaiah, Jeremiah, the prophets, the kings, David, Solomon, through their visions of what would come, they were ministering to you and me. They were looking forward to what you and I have, which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you, which the Holy Spirit sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. And talk about privilege. 
We, ha- we are experiencing the days of fulfillment that Jeremiah looked forward to when he talked about the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. The days will come when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. God says, I will write my law on your hearts and forgive your sins. We're living in the days that Ezekiel looked forward to when God promised, I'll take the heart of fle- stone out of you and give you a heart of flesh. That's the, that's the gospel. That's the new birth. And we have it. We're living in the days that they looked forward to when they just had the temple to the days where God himself would dwell among his people saying that you are the temple of God. They, they went to the temple. We are the temple. Kings like David and Josiah and Hezekiah were godly and heroic. But they did not see the glory of Christ, the reign of King Jesus. But we do. The great prophets glimpsed the glory that was to come, but they did not fully experience it. They predicted it, but they did not taste it. Yes, Isaiah had a vision of the glory of Christ in Isaiah 6. The the, the thrice holy God, John 12, tells us that was Jesus that he saw. David sang about Jesus in Psalm 110 and verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. They spoke of Christ, but they did not themselves hear him. They glimpsed him in the shadows. But we get to see his miracles blazing from the pages of Scripture. What a privilege. Have you realized that we are living in the age of fulfillment? That the kingdom has broken into this world? That Satan's defeat is final? We're simply awaiting for the final act of the play when Jesus comes back to rule and to reign. That's it, right? We, we have what they looked forward to. We have the opportunity to have this relationship with God through Christ, to enjoy all the blessings of the new covenant through the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit of God not just coming upon us to empower us, but dwelling within us as his permanent abode. We get to gather, not just as Jews, but a people of every nation, tribe, and tongue to worship God. And we are made one body in Christ. What a privilege! Right? When was the last time you thanked God for that? When was the last time you read the Old Testament and praised him for the fact that all those shadows have been fulfilled and the reality has arrived? That all of those glimpses, those previews are done and the actual movie is playing? When was the last time you just reveled and delighted in that? That is meant to be a cause for your joy. So days are going to come where, you're, where you are longing, thy kingdom come. Yet we should also remember that in a sense the kingdom is here, right? Jesus does reign over everything. The days are going to be here where we long for him to return and establish on this earth what's already going on in our hearts. But the reality is here. Let us rejoice in this. Let us find real joy in these truths, in these realities. So rejoice, not about the money in your bank account, but in the victory over sin and Satan that is ours through Jesus. Rejoice not in the security that you might have, in relationships, but rejoice in that security you have in Christ. Rejoice in God's sovereignty over all things. Rejoice over our opportunity to live in this era of fulfillment. Will you rejoice and delight in God? Will you make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands? Will you serve the Lord with gladness? Will you worship him with joy? Will you serve him with trembling? That's what this calls us to. May God help us to rejoice in God. Father, we praise you for all that you have done for us.